Welcome to the Motor Witch Chronicles. I'm your host, Koji Helnwein. Today, I'd like to introduce you to a very special woman. She has ridden solo across the USA, Laos, and Southeast Asia, and she's currently in Colombia. She's adventuring alone on her motorcycle to promote anti-wildlife trafficking campaigns and wildlife environmental educational products in remote villages there. Janelle Kaz is an anti-wildlife trafficking motorcycle journalist, and she's here today to share her incredibly inspiring story from Imbagé in Colombia. Janelle Kaz, welcome to Motor Witch Chronicles. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to talk with you about your mission. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you're doing. So I've spent more than a few years of my life living on a motorcycle, having the ability to to roam, doing so with a purpose. I felt connected to wildlife my whole life and studying biology in university. I began my life in Asia and was wanting to work against the trade there. So I spent a lot of time in Laos, working in a national protected forest on the border of Vietnam and Laos and creating educational curriculums for children in these remote villages to increase biophilia. So their love and connection to the outdoors and these amazing animals that existed in their backyard. The locals there, are they aware of what's happening with the wildlife trafficking and why you're there? Well, it's really interesting because many of them were not aware that the animals that are endangered there are found nowhere else in the world and that people outside of their country care about them. They were really surprised to hear this. And, you know, mostly they haven't seen high quality images of these animals. Maybe they've seen a dead one or a poor illustration of one, but they've never actually been able to look into the eyes of these animals being able to to show these images or videos to to kids in the classroom you know you never really know what the seeds will grow into and what will bloom from it but uh, i hope to have provided a different connection for them than they've experienced before with these with these amazing animals for those who might not know a lot about it can you tell us a little bit about what the wildlife trafficking is so wildlife trafficking is it's estimated to be around a 20 billion dollar year industry. It's highly organized crime syndicates who are operating on levels that they use the same trade routes as drugs and arms and it's incredibly lucrative and one of the highest reasons for this is is the traditional Chinese medicine. So Asia is a huge, huge hub for wildlife trafficking. But the United States is actually the second highest consumer of e- illegally trafficked wildlife goods after China. So it's a much bigger problem in the States than most people realize. So it's it was very interesting to be in Laos, which is you know, a little landlocked country. So uh, it's one, it's one of the poorer nations and it's both a source and a portal for the trade uh, being, you know, bordered by Vietnam and China where things are moving through. Being a source and a portal, it's, it's quite an interesting place to be and there's so much work to be done there. You were saying that the trafficking is run by some hardcore people. Do you feel safe on your mission? 
You know, it's interesting. When I first landed in Thailand, you know, I was there because right after my degree in science, and I just really wanted to start working against the trade. And I would arrive at these, you know, national parks and just tell them that I wanted to work there for free and I wanted to help. And they were just like, you know, we we don't do that. And just basically turned me away. And when I would talk to people about it in in bank about these things, you know, that very powerful people had their hands in this lucrative trade. And unless I was under the protective umbrella of a large organization that, yeah, it it wouldn't be safe for me. (laughs) It certainly took a little time before I found my niche that I could work in and feel safe in. But yeah, it's it's certainly something, you know, to be aware of. There are many activists and conservationists who who go missing, particularly in in Asia. So it's something that you do have to be careful. I think, you know, my MO is is to be very cautious, you know, being by myself as a woman through much of this. So yeah, I try to be smart about (laughs) all things that I do in this world I've created for myself. With that in mind, actually, what is it like to ride as a solo woman in Laos? Is it a common thing for people there to see? No, it's not common at all. It's really interesting, actually. Laos is an incredible place. I highly recommend people to visit there. The type of motorcycle that I had is not common. They banned the import of any quote-unquote big bikes in Laos until pretty recently, I think maybe 2012. And they're considering anything over 175 cc's to be a big bike. So most of the people in the villages have never seen a big, like I would be riding a 250, you know, a KLX 250 or a Yamaha XT. And they've never seen a bike that big, let alone, you know, a girl, a foreigner riding it. So I think they found me pretty intimidating. And I'm 5'6", so I'm not that tall, but I'm actually considered tall in Asia. So I think it was nice to be intimidating in that regard. So yeah, it's definitely not a common thing to see. (laughs) And were there any specific things that you had to be aware of in terms of your safety there? You know, Laos is actually quite peaceful. Southeast Asia in general is relatively nonviolent. So I always felt safe, even if I, you know, I have a tent hammock and I would just sling it up somewhere that felt safe for the night. And I certainly would have, you know, farmers poking my hammock in the morning, you know, like sub ID is how they say hello. And, you know, they're always friendly. I feel welcomed in the world and I treat the world with love. And so I think I get a lot of that back. You know, it's mirrored back to me. Yeah. You were there in Laos teaching children, right? What was it? Yeah, mostly. What were the kind of things that you were teaching them? I would fundraise in the States, like when I would ride across uh, the States on a bike and raise funds for educational resources, you know, also be developing curriculums. I would bring those back and through translators, we would train the teachers. So we would give them the resources and give them training so that they could implement these programs into the existing curriculum. So it would have a bit more, you know, longevity. So we were teaching them about the status of these animals, if they're endemic, found nowhere else in the world, certain behaviors or habits of these incredible wildlife. In the mountains, the limestone forests on the border of Laos and Vietnam, they discovered this large antelope-like deer in the forest in 1992. And it's one of the last large mammal discoveries 
on the planet. So it's really quite incredible. And they know very, very little about this animal, but it's so special. It's called the Saola. And they've been trying to find more of it, but they're very elusive. And so they're not even sure if there are more alive or not. The animals like that or the red shank duke, which is this incredibly colorful primate, soft powder, blue eyelids and, you know, red, black and white patterned fur, quite large. They're, you know, maybe about a meter tall and they live in these forests and, and nowhere else in the world. So, yeah, just just telling them about how special and amazing this wildlife is and also going out, you know, into their own area around the schools and with magnifying glasses and binoculars, you know, just interacting with nature in a way that they hadn't before. Are they aware of the extent of the trafficking or has it just become totally normalized for them? Well, they are aware that the forests seem empty. Right. You know, they have this quietness in the forest that they didn't used to know. And so they realize that many of the animals have disappeared. And it's very interesting because a lot of people think, well, you know, these people are so poor. That's why they are selling their, you know, their wildlife. That's why they're trafficking it to Vietnam or China. But in reality, that's not the issue. It's actually because the affluence has been increasing in places like China and Vietnam. So they want, you know, more rare luxury meats in their restaurants or these status symbols of rare endangered species. So that's really the main problem. If the people like in these forests in Laos, if they were just hunting for themselves for their own subsistence, then they wouldn't be losing the animals at the rate that they are and they wouldn't be endangered in the same way that they are. Wow. You've been using your motorcycles, the vehicle, to tell this story and to spread the awareness of your cause. How did you first get into riding motorbikes? Yeah, you know, it's one of my favorite accomplishments is connecting motorcycle culture to wildlife conservation and the fight against trafficking. You know, being a bridge is probably one of my favorite <laughs> aspects of, of my life. And it seems, you know, being a, a woman alone on a motorcycle is a, a very compelling way to tell this story about conservation and anti-trafficking, you know, to people who otherwise might not be aware of it or might not want to listen. So yeah, I fell in love with motorcycles when I was a teenager. And I don't come from a family of, of riders. So it was just something that I sought out on my own. Yeah, I wanted to ride on the back of anyone's motorcycle, whoever would take me and I wanted them to go as fast as they possibly could. <laughs> and I eventually got to a point where I didn't want to need anyone else for that experience. And I took out my first loan when I was 19 and bought a Kawasaki Ninja off the showroom floor and didn't tell my parents wow. <laughs> so. so what was it like when you took that bike out for the first time did you know how to ride it no, I had ridden like a dirt bike one time before, but it didn't go that well. I didn't have a lot of time to practice. So I really was just sort of pointed in the direction of a parking lot where I could go practice and learn how to ride this new motorcycle that I bought. And uh, yeah, I practiced for a few hours and sort of gained a little bit of confidence and then wanted to go out and show off to my friends like, hey, look what I bought mm -hmm. and met up with a friend and we were riding out in the country. And 
and uh, we ended up getting split up. I was doing two things that I shouldn't have been doing. I was riding on the highway and riding by myself, which you're not allowed to do either of those with just a permit in the U.S. As inexperienced as I was, I was passing this car on the left and sort of got over too far on the shoulder where there was a lot of gravel. And so I ended up wrecking the motorcycle into the median and uh, the bike slid maybe 30, 35 feet kind of threw me off once the, sh- the shifter caught in the ground. And so <laughs> thankfully there was a guy who uh, he saw the whole thing and he came down and helped me and he was like covered in Harley tattoos and told me that he hated to see a rider go down, especially a girl. <laughs> so I just, you know, implored him to please help me get my bike out of there as soon as possible before any police came. Oh, wow. And then I called my dad <laughs> And told him that I bought a motorcycle and that I just wrecked it. (laughs) And he, yeah, it took him a really quite a while to believe me. But he finally did and came and picked me up, me and the bike. And the shifter blade had broken. The shifter caught in the ground while it was sliding and spun the bike around and threw me off. I was okay. I had a lot of protective gear on, thankfully. And my jacket just came up a little bit on my hip and some of the grass took my skin off. Yeah, my dad, he had a friend who could weld aluminum. And so his friend welded the shifter plate back together. And my dad um, had me test the bike to see if it would work well or if it was fixed properly for me and I'm I'm really thankful that he encouraged me to get back on that day because I think I could have been really afraid if I hadn't got back on the same day that was my that was my first day wow that's impressive <laughs> you know they, you said your dad your parents and your family they weren't bikers at all so your dad really supported you through that it's amazing yeah, I'm really, really thankful that, that he came through for that. Even, you know, he must have known in some way that it could have been scary for me. And, you know, I'm the only daughter. I have, I have three brothers. And soon after this, my dad went out and, and bought a Harley. So I think having his only daughter buy a motorcycle sort of <laughs> gave him the permission he was waiting for, perhaps, right. to go out and get his own bike. So amazing. <laughs> so after you got on this bike, like, what was your first long motorcycle trip then? Uh, well, I, I soon moved from where I lived um, near my family in Virginia down to Asheville, North Carolina. And my home became the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is in the Smoky Mountains on the, the Appalachian Mountain Range. And it's just beautiful, curvy, winding roads. The riding there is just wonderful. And it's one of the reasons I moved there, that in the university. So yeah, those long trips, any excuse for a long trip you know I I would jump on it Um, but the first trip that I ever did that was going long distance and sleeping each night in a new place was actually in the north of Thailand and uh, I rented a bike up in Chiang Mai I think it was a CBR a Honda CBR and after that trip I mean I just was convinced that this is how I wanted to see the world and you know after like a five-day trip I returned the bike and was in Chiang Mai in the city for I think one day only and was like this is enough and I went back and rented the exact same bike and took off again on another trip yeah I just from that moment on I knew that this this was my preferred mode of transportation wow that's amazing I know after your time in 
I think it was your first trip from Laos. You spent about a year there. You took a trip mm -hmm. across the USA then to raise funds and awareness, right? Tell us a little bit yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I usually sell the bikes and then purchase another one, you know, on, on the other continent. So I had sold my bike in Laos and flew to the East Coast where my family lives. Flew into North Carolina because a friend of mine in Asheville said that he would sell me his Yamaha 650, a V-Star. He gave me a really good deal on it. And it, it worked out really well because I was able to see all my friends, you know, in North Carolina and then right up to to see my family in Virginia. And um, this bike didn't have any kind of wind fairing on it. So the interstate, you know, the like high speed highways were just painful. Holding your head against that current of wind. It, I mean, I got to a point where I didn't think that I could hold my head up. So it sort of forced me onto all of these small country roads, which ended up being the best part about my trip across the States because I got to see all of old America, like all of the old two-lane small highways that just go through all of the little towns. I, I really am thankful for that. You know, you miss so much on interstates where you just like you see the same landscape and to be able to slowly move through the states was, yeah, it was a really wonderful experience. Wow, it sounds absolutely incredible. After being in Laos for so long, what was it like to drive on American roads then? <laughs> It's really funny, uh, Laos especially, I like to think of like the wild, wild west because <laughs> the roads are just terrible and there's not really any rules or enforcement. So going from dirt and just not really even a road, like it's more potholes than road with pigs and goats and crazy motorbikes, you know, packed with lumber or six people on one scooter. Going from that to the organized pavement of the States, it's, yeah, it's hard to follow all of the rules, <laughs> I find. <laughs> And it's also amazing how easy it can feel. I've learned some really important lessons in Laos, being without water and breaking down in the middle of nowhere and actually feeling a little concerned for my existence and knowing wow. that I should never, never travel without water ever again. You know, and I would find myself doing that in the States like, oh, man, I don't have any water. I've already learned this lesson. I'm going to pull over, you know, the next available opportunity and get some. Them, you know, and then you pull over and it's like this air conditioned, like <laughs> nice rest stop with carbonated probiotic drinks. And it's like, wow, this is really easy. <laughs> Sometimes it feels a little too easy, actually. <laughs> on that trip, where was your starting point? Tell us a little bit about the route that you took just to give us an idea on the map where you where you started and where you ended. So I bought the bike in Asheville, North Carolina, and I had a pretty meandering way to the West Coast from there. So the whole trip was about 10,000 miles. Wow. You know, I went up to Virginia, where my family was. And then from there, I went up towards Michigan. I had a lot of contacts, like I stopped in Ohio. There's uh, somebody I collaborated with on a project from Laos, was in Ohio. Saw my grandparents in Michigan, but also... The whole way I was stopping at motorcycle events, schools, community events, and just talking to people and to children about the animals that exist in Laos. 
and beyond, and also what it's like to be a child in Laos. So I had a, a presentation I was doing at schools. I was also able to meet up with people like through Instagram in the motorcycle world. Denver was a really amazing spot where I got to meet up with incredible people and, you know, like ride with some of the, the Scarlet Headers, the women's motorcycle club there. So yeah, I went through the Midwest and then to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and down to Denver, and then made my way west across to Crested Butte, Colorado, and into Utah. And uh, there was a motorcycle show happening in Salt Lake City, so I got to meet a lot of really amazing moto culture people there. I was born in Utah. I got to ride my bike to the house I grew up in and park it in front and take a photo. Then I made my way to the dream roll. So I went up to Portland and got to meet up with CC Motorcycle Coffee House and some people at Moto Guzzi and get some donations that I took to the dream roll. And um, yeah, I like set, set up a little table there and got to talk to amazing women. You know, each woman that you meet at a place like that is so rad and so chill and uh, super supportive. I felt really supported by the women there. And that was actually the first year of the dream role. Wow. So it was incredible to have known many of these women, you know, through an online platform like Instagram and then get to, <laughs> to, meet, to meet them, them in person. person and yeah, and ride together and camp together. And it, yeah, it was really an incredible experience. For anyone who might not know what Dream Roll is, tell us just really quickly a little bit about what it is and how long it lasts for yeah, it's a weekend in the beautiful, beautiful mountains near a dormant volcano that's called Mount Adams. And it's just east of Portland. You get to ride along the Columbia River to reach there. Uh, that first year, we had like a pre-party in Portland where everybody got to meet up and then we rode out together the next day. This past year, I, I believe there was about 500 women there. And it's all different kinds of women, all different kinds of bikes. And they're all just, you know, coming together to just sort of enjoy this experience of, of being a woman and, you know, feeling the strength and support of your sisters and ride out to some beautiful waterfall together and, you know, just really feel free. Yeah, it's a really great experience. And I, I feel really lucky to know all the incredible women that I've met going to places like that. That's amazing. I know it's a dream of a lot of people to be able to go to that. Since you're such an experienced solo adventurer, what are the toughest challenges that you find in riding solo for such a long time? There are times, certainly, when I just question, like, why? <laughs> why am I doing this alone? But I'd have to say they're very minimal compared to how much, you know, I feel like I can go wherever I want. If I see a road and it looks enticing and I have the time or the ability, then I can just take it. You know, I don't have to consult with anybody else as to whether or not it's a good idea or, you know, where does it even go? <laughs> So uh, I get to, you know, jump on detours at will or, or stop whenever I want to take a photo. I try not to ride at night. So if I'm going to a place that I've never been, a new town, sometimes it can be challenging if it seems like it wasn't going to take as long as it did. But then, you know, here I am navigating in the dark. I try to avoid <laughs> those 
those circumstances because I've certainly been in them enough to know that, you know, looking for a place to sleep in the dark, maybe it's raining or who knows, sometimes insects can do a crazy swarming thing at dusk and you don't want to be out in that. (laughs) So I I certainly try to, once I arrive somewhere, I, I don't explore too much at night on my own. I certainly don't go out drinking by myself. You know, there there are certain ways in which I conduct my life to make sure that I'll be able to continue (laughs) this way of life. I can imagine that you must learn a lot about yourself and all the quiet moments that you have riding alone for so long. Like it just it seems like an incredible journey personally and mentally. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that's one thing I I really love, particularly about riding in the States is wherever I stop along the way, I meet so many people, you know, that I just love spending time with either in the motorcycle world or in the wildlife conservation world. But then, you know, I get to get back on the road and have that solace, this like solitude of meditation on wheels, you know, where I just get to think about everything. (laughs) And yeah, I find when something is broken on my motorcycle or things haven't gone as planned or I've been stranded, those are really the moments when you get to meet yourself because problem solving on your own where, you know, you're the only person who can help you get out of that situation. Yeah, they've been such incredible opportunities for me to grow as a person, as a mechanic, you know, in all those ways. How do you combat those fears that sometimes come along with riding as a woman alone across country like that? You know, it's so interesting. It doesn't matter where I am in the world. People fear for me. You know, like as I was saying, Lao is very peaceful. It's very nonviolent. And yet the grandmothers would tell me like some bad man is going to come and slit your throat and take your motorcycle (laughs) <laughs> which is just like, oh my God, you know, and this is somewhere where I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen, grandma, you know, and it's same when I'm in the States, people are blown away that I'm doing it by myself. You know, they think it's so unsafe. And, and I, I just think that people watch too much news. I think mm-hmm. that there's very tragic information in the news and it makes people very afraid. And it was really, really interesting coming here to Columbia, you know, before I left the States, having never been here before and knowing about, you know, the history of Colombia and the violence that's taken place here. They're just getting out of 53 years of war, of very violent conflict. And people are are very passionate in Latin cultures. And you can see it in the way they interact, you know, in their language and how they express emotion and affection. You don't see any of that in Asia. And you also don't see the violence that you see in, in Latin cultures. So knowing that, you know, I, I definitely felt a great deal of fear and anxiety um, even coming here. And even when I got my motorcycle, when I finally purchased it in Bogota, I I felt very afraid setting out on my own, just like, oh, wow, okay, I'm really doing this, wow. you know, and I, yeah, it's just kind of like taking one step at a time and, and seeing where it takes you. And it's been amazing. Like the people here are so wonderful. They're so friendly. 
And I was even really afraid of the police when I first arrived because in Bogota, the police are everywhere. And I'm sort of used to like the Asian experience of them being quite corrupt and only wanting money. And so I felt worried about when they were going to stop me. But I've been stopped a couple of times now and they just want to check your your documents. Right. And they've been so, so kind to me, like offering me suggestions of where I should go in Colombia and making sure that I know the right route to where I'm trying to go. And it's just been really, really wonderful. So I, I feel much more at ease. And I know that there are still places in Colombia that are not safe to go. And it's important to know where those those places are. You know, they're still operated or controlled by the armed militant groups. Um, so it's important to know the, the local information about about those areas and basically to just not go there. But for the most part, I felt very welcomed and well received by Colombia. And I'm I'm so glad that for every point in my life that I didn't let fear stop me or I didn't listen to those grandmas or yeah. to the news or or whatever anyone was telling me about whether or not that would be a safe thing for me to do. <laughs> you know, tell us a little bit about what it is that you're currently doing there in Colombia. What does a typical day for Janelle Kaz look like? <laughs> well, there isn't really a typical day because every day is so different. So my mission here is to focus on the positive things that are being done to protect ecosystems and the animals and people who depend on them. So there's trafficking that exists within this country. That's a huge part of the pet trade within the country. So birds, reptiles, small monkeys, sloths, many of them are being sold as pets within the country. But more and more, they're seeing that animals are being trafficked outside of Colombia. So the people who are here actually working on the ground to protect the wildlife, to protect their habitat, I want to help tell their story so that not only will they get more eyes and more focus on you know, their particular projects and their locations, but um, also so that they'll get potentially more funding and more support. And I think that the more that we focus on the things that are good, that are positive, the more those things can exist, the more those things will manifest. You know, if there are successful conservation methods, those can be spread elsewhere. You know, more people will learn about those. So I sort of want more of this to exist. And so that's what I'm focusing on and still realizing, you know, the challenges that these these people and projects face and, you know, what they're up against. There's no way that you can know their story without knowing their challenges. But it's, yeah, it's definitely the positive things that I'm, I'm focusing on. So you're doing, you're out there doing all this and you're riding a motorcycle as your mode of transport yep. there. And are you, are you getting yeah. a chance to explore or are you constantly working or do you get a chance to explore on your motorcycle the amazing landscape out there yeah i mean part of the work is exploring you know so it's like finding these biological research stations these conservation projects you know these places where amazing wildlife exists and uh i i love the bike that i'm on i'm on a royal enfield himalayan hey. <laughs> and uh yeah i i'm i i love it more and more each day i've put about 2,500 kilometers on it now. It's so fun to ride on 
the off-road situations or, you know, these roads that aren't paved. And going into the mountains, it's just, I feel not limited by it at all. You know, if I see some like rugged trail, I totally feel confident to take it, which there's, you can't put a value on that you know like to be able to go wherever you want is is really fantastic I've seen some really beautiful places here in Colombia already and you know I'm just getting ready to head south tomorrow I'll be heading south down to the Amazonian region there's some incredible wildlife there as well as some really interesting projects protecting the forest there and a lot of like plant medicine research that's done with indigenous knowledge and you know this sort of ancient wisdom that protects the plants and the animals and you know they actually believe that plants and animals are simply humans in a different realm of reality So they have a a very strong connection to them. I'm really excited to go see this other part of Colombia because Colombia has the most varied landscapes of any country in the world. You know, and they also have the highest diversity of birds, of bird species of any country in the world. So it's a really incredible country. And what a, what better way to see it than on, on a motorcycle when you're actually in it, right? Oh, I, there's no better way, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> Tell me, how can people out here in the rest of the world get involved in helping with the wildlife trafficking campaign? Is there some way we can help you with your mission? Uh, I think sh- uh, sharing, you know, just sharing the knowledge of, of this, you know, what the realities are and who are the people who are working against it and supporting those people. So the more that we get behind their efforts and become aware of, of our own role, you know, a, a lot of Americans don't realize, you know, what sort of effects the the birds they're buying or importing like what what sort of situation that has come from and there I actually recently met this couple they have a wildlife sanctuary where they take in all sorts of wildlife they recently pretended like they were going to buy some endangered monkeys that they saw on the side of the road and instead they stole them they got they pretended like they were going to buy them and they just jumped into their truck and stole them which I think is absolutely brilliant because so many people, they see wildlife for sale and they know that if they don't buy it, somebody else will. Mm-hmm. And maybe that somebody else won't care for it. And, you know, it could be in a worse situation. So these people purchase it with the intent of either caring for it or letting it go. But they don't realize how their money is perpetuating this trade. And, you know, that person may go out and poach two more money monkeys to to sell and so stealing it like having like a sort of wildlife liberation pirate movement I think is is wonderful but you know when people are traveling if they see an animal like a baby animal that they can pay to have their photo taken with Mm -hmm. they're also perpetuating a horrible market because most likely that animal was kidnapped from the jungle and if it's young then it was probably um with its mother and they shot the mother and now this animal is an orphan and it, this animal is probably not going to be well cared for and it will probably die. So if these people are paying to take their photos with these animals, you know, they're just per- perpetuating this this illegal 
taking of the animal from the jungle and it's not a good situation to be very aware of those sorts of things when you're traveling and to not support those people i I think that's a good way to be (laughs) yeah so really to be to kind of educate themselves on the situation and definitely i mean yeah those animals yeah they came from the wild and that's where they belong yeah you know like to see an elephant walking down the streets in bangkok please don't please don't pay them any money like this it's something that needs to end and your money is not going to do that so to stop perpetuating those markets is Mm -hmm. is very essential so janelle do you have any advice for someone out there who's listening to you who may be dreaming of taking off on a solo adventure but that they just haven't taken that first step yet do you have any advice for them you know, I just, I think there's, there's no time like the present, you know, whatever thing that you're waiting for to give you permission or to give you freedom or to make you feel more adequate or prepared. There's always going to be something more that is an obstacle, you know, and we're, we're always our own greatest obstacles, but to really just take that first step. And you might not feel totally secure or totally like you know what you're doing, but that's to be expected and those things will come. Awesome. Yeah, take the first step. And finally, what does being a female motorcyclist mean to you? Um, I would say the, the biggest aspect that that means to me is freedom and strength and independence. Being able to to go out into the world and to feel welcome in the world. And, you know, everyone listening to this is a motorcyclist, then I don't need to tell them mm-hmm. that there's no other feeling like riding a motorcycle, especially, you know, like out into a landscape that's just absolutely beautiful. Like, I, I feel most alive in those moments. And yeah, there's nothing else that I've done that has granted that feeling. Janelle, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. I've actually loved every second of it. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you online and keep up with what it is that you're doing? Yeah, thank you. It's been amazing to talk to you as well. And I'm really excited about the Moto Witch Collective. The motorcycle, the women's motorcycle community is thriving worldwide. And I'm just stoked to see it and be a part of it. Um, I'm pretty active on Instagram. You can find me there at Moto Gypsy. And I've got a few other avenues of of storytelling, um, writing for a few different motorcycle magazines. And I think the probably the best place to find me is Instagram and sort of working on a website had a strange instance where I Googled something for my friend and found that somebody had made me a website. Wow. But they like they wrote they wrote it in first person, so it was really, really strange to find. And they also paid for a service to hide their identity. That's kind of creepy. <laughs> so oh my gosh. It was. It was a little creepy. Uh, I found out who it was though, and they meant well and it was supposed to be a surprise. It was oh. just oh really gosh. bizarre. <laughs> so yeah, I I'll be taking control of that website at some point and awesome. uh, I'll have like a a landing page as well so so for now, for now for now we can all stalk your beautiful photos and your stories on instagram they break my heart every day when i see it raining here in ireland and you're there showing this beautiful landscape it's absolutely stunning so your your instagram uh, is a uh, moto gypsy if anybody yes. wants to connect yep. with you fantastic janelle kaz uh-huh. thank you so much for talking with us and being a part of the moto witch collective i really appreciate my it. pleasure thank you 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. We love hearing back from our listeners. If you'd like even more content from female bikers around the world, head on over to motowitch.com for articles written by world record holders, adventurers and new riders alike. If you're a female biker listening to this and you're thinking, I have something I'd like to share with the Motowitch community, please get in touch with me. No matter how small or insignificant you might think your moto life is, I guarantee that it is a beautiful and wild adventure that we would love to hear and someone out there can learn from. Submit your story to hello at motowitch.com now. Either way, say hi over on Instagram at Motowitch Collective. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you'll stick with me as I learn on the fly. Until next time, ride safe. <laughs>